0: Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman.
1: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today on Heaven Sent and Bent. I hope that you have figured out how to download the Talk Zone app on your smartphone so that you can um, listen anywhere and at any time during your day so that you can listen to the podcast after the live show is over. And if you haven't downloaded the app, I hope that you are sitting in front of your computer and logged on to the Talk Zone, www.talkzone.com, and listening live. I have a wonderful show for you today, and I come to the show this morning uh very filled with emotion, and um it's probably going to be very hard for me. Ugh, not to break down at, at some point because I've just had a great, great weekend. And really my weekend, my wonderful weekend is due to people like my guest today. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Michael Brook. And I'm going to be talking to him a little bit later on about what he does for the autism world and people who are on the spectrum. But he is amongst many people who have chosen to devote their lives to helping people that are on the spectrum in one way or another and if it wasn't for people like them who have recognized that there is a service that needs to be filled and are filling it i don't know what we would be doing as parents and grandparents of of these these children that are uh, that we are finding are on the spectrum and i wanted to start out the day by reading to you a friend a friend sent this to me and um it was very telling. It was sent to her by a friend of hers who is a therapist, and she says, um, ac- according to a report in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, mothers of autistic children suffer as much stress on a daily basis as a combat soldier. The constant fear and worry of caring for someone on the autistic spectrum is relentless. They face an ongoing struggle to make society understand their child even though at times they struggle to cope and understand themselves. Because autism is invisible, it is difficult for others to understand. And despite the fast-rising numbers of people now being diagnosed, 1 in 88 people, there is still much ignorance out there as to how to address this disability and the impact it has on those affected. Research has not come up with answers to the cause of this dramatic increase in numbers. Although a genetic vulnerability seems likely due to environmental factors out there, families assume they will be given answers and help once a diagnosis is finally given. But this is not the case. Support is non-existent at worst and sporadic at best. Medical practitioners understand little of this disability. Education cannot cope with the demand for special units, therefore the child has to muddle through, often missing out on an academic education as their specific needs go unaddressed. Less than 22% of teachers have had basic autism awareness training, according to a National Autistic Society study. Further down the line, colleges offer life skill courses, which do little to enable them to find employment. There are only 13% of people with autism in employment compared to 50% of learning disabled. This has nothing to do with their ability to work, but in sustaining employment due to lack of understanding of employers, often not getting past the interview stage or due to the many myths surrounding autism that people tend to believe. And everything that she said in there is so true. And one of the things that my guest today, Dr. Michael Brook, does is to help these uh, you know, adolescents and adults. He teaches them the social skills that are needed. Just as this article talks about how these kids, these young adults don't even get through the interview process of, of possibly getting a job. And my guest last week, uh, De- Derek Volk, talked about his son Dylan, Dylan and how Dylan was able to often find employment But then weeks later, he would be fired because they didn't understand how to work with him. And Derek uh, and I last week talked, and I think Dr. Brooke and I will talk a little bit today, about how employers and even the educational system, they don't understand really and truly how to work with these children. And so they group them in with the other disabilities. They put them in the resource room. They focus on um, IEPs that are designated to help with education, but not necessarily how specifically to teach these kids that are on the spectrum. It's really, really, it's a new challenge. And it's something that, just as, uh, just as uh, this therapist mentioned in her article, you know, with other disabilities, as in my son, when, when, once we got the diagnosis of cerebral palsy with my son, the f- light switch was flipped on and the, the, the services that were out there were opened up to us. We found someone that was able to help us get a wheelchair. We found someone who was able to help with physical therapy. We found someone for occupational therapy. The school system welcomed him. Um, Transportation was provided for him to get to and from school. He was assigned an aide that was with him. It never left his side the entire time he was at the school. It was easily observed that he had a disability. He was accepted. He was loved. He was um, kind of um, a hero in the school because of his disability. What a contrast to my grandson. Who is high functioning on the autism spectrum. The absolute total opposite. His IEP is filled with, um, discouraging comments about his behavior, not even taking into consideration what his diagnosis is. They, they looked at the diagnosis, put it aside, and then addressed his behavior as if it was a defiant behavior and not related to his diagnosis at all and then when it came to actually working with him helping him function in a school environment there was absolutely nothing going on so when when this therapist says that it's an invisible disability it so is and it's very frustrating for parents and even Derek last week said the same thing once they were able to get the diagnosis it didn't really help they 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 still weren't able to get the services Um, that they needed. Fortunately, it's now 2015. Uh, things have, have grown and people like Dr. Brooke have come along and, and they are now offering services. And I actually dropped my grandson off this morning for the first time at a school that specifically deals with kids that are either on the spectrum, high functioning on the spectrum, or are just having trouble fitting into the typical school system, and to watch my five foot seven, twelve year old grandson uh, stand there in the hallway of this school and see the children walk in. This is a school that services kids uh, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, and to see these kids make eye contact with him and say, "Hey, what's your name? My name is such and such. Welcome." uh just brought me to tears. It was absolutely beautiful. Thank heavens there are people out there that recognize this need and, and are fulfilling this service. So I think you're going to find this show very, very interesting today. I hope that you... We'll be able to, uh, find resources that you need and perhaps Dr. Brooke will give us some insight, uh, into how exactly you can do that. I want to introduce to you today Dr. Michael Brooke. Dr. Brooke grew up in Montana and you would think that anyone that grew up in Montana would just be hunting and fishing and, and rafting and camping and, and he did that as a child, but he also liked to do things like play the piano and Gymnastics and play games like Dungeons and Dragons, which made him a little bit of a, a an unusual child. And he got teased a little bit as a child for having interests and in things like that. And sometimes, you know, he didn't feel as though he fit in. But he figured out a way to make friends, and he developed some skills that helped him to make friends. And he eventually traveled out outside of montana and ended up in new jersey and he became a clinical psychologist and he specializes in helping socially awkward adolescents and adults fit in and make friends you would think that that's something that comes naturally to people and often it does but for children that are are, are adults and even uh, you know adolescents that are on the spectrum making friends is something they actually have to learn so he developed a product called Chime In, the Conversation Game, and he now teaches this to uh, adolescents and adults. He has presented this program to uh, the annual meeting for the Oregon Psychology Association and at Oregon Health and Science University, so you are going to really enjoy speaking with him, and thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brooke.
0: Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm uh, enjoying being on here and can't wait to talk about things.
1: Well, I'm really excited as well. Tell the audience, tell the listeners exactly what it means when you talk about the awkwardness, the social awkwardness of people who fall on the spectrum and how difficult it is for them to make friends.
0: Yeah, the the social awkwardness... um it's not that um, any a child wants to be awkward. One of the misnomers uh, that people have about uh, people who are on the spectrum is that they may not be interested in having friends, that they prefer to be isolated. And um, th- really, for the most part, I mean, it, it, it just in very rare in- instances might that be somewhat the case, but everyone wants friends. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to, to have some sense of connection. Uh, And so, uh, but in their quest to find friends and to make friends, um, they keep stumbling over all of these hidden social rules, these things that that never get talked about. And in fact, uh, people who start picking up on social skills naturally, they're not good at at being able to articulate what these rules are. They just kind of know when somebody has violated them. So an an example of that is if... uh, Somebody says that, well, that coat just looks awful on you. Um, Most people would would cringe at uh, some person saying that because it's just become a social rule that you don't comment on something, particularly somebody's clothing negatively, unless uh, you're maybe your mom or dad or, or uh, the, the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend. And so but there's just so many of these uh, little social rules, and uh, the social rules change depending on the groupings of people that are there, whether it's peers, whether there are some adults there along with young kids, uh, whether there are women there, all women or all men. There's all of these ways in which uh, the rules for connecting change, and um, it just becomes um, a a very uh, 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 punitive kind of experience for uh, people on the spectrum because those subtleties don't come naturally in terms of uh, being able to learn them.
1: Right, right, exactly. And also uh, talk about the... Um, you know, because a lot of social skills are picked up through facial expression or body language, and a lot of times the people on the spectrum don't read those appropriately. And mm-hmm. so, ha- have you found like what do they have? You had clients that have expressed why uh, eye contact is difficult. For one, for example.
0: Well, uh, it can vary between people, but. Uh, Some of the reasons eye contact can be difficult is because uh, they just find the information they're getting visually too overstimulating, particularly uh, for individuals uh, uh, who, if if the person is meeting up with people they don't know very well. Another thing that can factor in is that with with sensory processing issues, some individuals have the choice of either listening. Or mm. looking, and so if they look, uh, then they look like they're listening, but they're, they actually really are having difficulty processing the auditory information. And then some uh, individuals just uh, haven't haven't gotten a lot of good training on, on that. And then a final thing is is that. Uh, it, many people on the spectrum haven't found looking at people's faces and seeing the nonverbal like, smirks and uh, eye-rolling or smiles and things to be terribly informative. And um. so they, they just don't understand the whole point of looking. Whereas for people who intuitively uh, get the social stuff, they, uh, most people really want to be looking at somebody's face because there's so much subtle uh, uh, expression that is going on that that helps inform whether or not what somebody's saying is literal or ironic or humorous or has a tinge of uh, anger in it all of these things.
1: That's so, interesting that yeah. yeah that's interesting that you would I, I never you know you understand the sensory issues as far as being touched or too much noise or uh, I've, you know, I've read that there, the sensory issues of being even in a building where there's fluorescent lights and the clicking, the, the clicking that we don't even, that we tune out, but they hear that. So you understand that part of the sensory issue, but I never really understood the fact that if you're an auditory learner or they prefer to listen, that actually having to listen and look at your face at the same time is too much. Mm-hmm. That's really that's yeah. really interesting that they can only you know multitasking I know is not easy for them and they don't often do it um, yeah. happily and so even something as simple that we take for granted like looking at your face and listening to you talk at the same time is a sensory overload.
0: Mhm, certainly can. Be.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And there's
0: also a processing speed issue. M- most individuals on the spectrum have processing speed issues. Think of it like having a computer that has a a Pentium processor from 1995. It can still process things, but it processes it much more slowly than a more modern computer. And and so oftentimes, they actually can pick up on many of the nonverbal uh, pieces of information, but... uh, it takes them about a second to uh, two seconds to really figure it out. And by that time, uh, the moment to react uh, naturally has passed. And so right. it, it's not that data you can think of in a way is not terribly useful, whereas they tend to be able to process uh, the verbal information quicker and, and respond to it a bit more in real time.
1: That's very interesting. So talk a little bit about how you came up with the product, the Chime In product, how that developed through your your clinics.
0: Yeah, well, um, as you alluded to, uh, I've had some experiences, particularly in grade school, where I was bullied and and, uh, bullying is never okay. I just want to um, emphasize, but certainly a person that gets bullied can make some contributions to it in terms of some social faux pas. And uh, I didn't realize till later that I was uh, doing some things um, like uh, I was being mean to people and not realizing that I was being mean to them because I was teasing people in a, in a way that I thought was friendly, but it was a way that like a bully teases people. And so, lo and behold, people didn't like hanging out with me, or many people didn't like hanging out with me. And um, and so that was just one of the things that I learned to adjust so that um, I wouldn't offend people. And so, uh, the long journey is is that I, I've had an interest in in helping uh, uh, children and adults um, not uh, have a better po- a social experience. And kind of been drifting around and, and finding different ways to do that. And so one of the areas that I've worked on is conversation skills. And as I've looked at that, uh, there are you know various people that teach social skills uh, components, but I was finding myself being frustrated by uh, many of the, of the systems out there. One of the Main things that frustrated me about them is is that there was a lot of good information, but in terms of teaching it, it was kind of like I could teach it one time to a kid and then they felt like that they understood it and they didn't want to hear about it anymore. Mm. And I knew that they didn't understand it, but. Um, you know, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't get them to drink. And so I was trying to find a way to get them to, to drink up more of this information so that uh, they might be able to develop some mastery. Uh, the other thing is is a, a lot of the ways in which, not all, but a lot of the ways in which social skills gets t- taught is a little bit more of a, of a teacher to a student format. Which uh, means in a fashion that that the teacher, in a way, always owns the skills. So if I'm teaching a child to uh, uh, ask questions, I'm always prompting the child to ask the question. And so if I'm always prompting the child to ask the question, the child isn't actually owning the skill and then picking and choosing when they use it. And so it it doesn't lead to – I was finding it frustrating to lead to generalization. Um, uh, and so, um, in doing that, I started creating some, uh, a card game out of index cards and it's, it's had a number of iterations, but basically I want the kids to own the skills and to be picking and choosing when to use the skills. And so the card game allows that to happen hmm. and it also provides enough structure so that, um, the, the kids can know the right things to be doing. Uh, because anyone who, who has worked with somebody who struggles with social skills has found out that they also tend to have problems with executive functioning, what is called planning and organizing. Most mm. kids on the, uh, who have social skills struggles have ADHD struggles. And so, uh, the game also provides four main things for them to focus on in conversation. And and so provides an, a natural structure for what are the skills to use. And those four skills are making statements, uh, asking questions that show interest in others, using encouraging gestures and sounds, and um, using friendly teasing. And, hmm. uh, and so then with time, they get to start picking and choosing which skill to use with their peers. And each time that it goes well, just the, the positivity of the social interaction helps reinforce the use of the skill. And anytime it goes wrong, since there's a, a, a quote-unquote expert a social skills person there, namely me or another teacher or a parent, they can provide some feedback as to what went wrong so that, that it it caused an awkward silence or it made people have weird looks towards the person, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Huh. Interesting. Well, go through those four Those four steps, because I'm interested to see how these, uh, people learn, uh, to, for example, uh, to ask a question where, that in their mind, they are not interested in any statement that you have, unless it's something that they're focused on. Why on earth would they take the time to have a conversation about something that you might be interested in? You know, that's usually what you find with a lot of the the children, especially that are focused uh, when they're on the spectrum, they might be focused on something and that is all they're thinking about. So now you're asking them to participate in a conversation about something else. How do you, how do you, start go through each one of those points and talk about how you deal with that like someone would start out and they would make a statement about anything is that how the game begins
0: right well um, so let me step back just a moment is that the way I look at conversation in in reality is is I see conversation as a game and oh. uh, just just regular conversation is a game and and so there's a goal and broadly speaking People who struggle socially don't understand the goal of the game. And so they think that the goal of the game is to uh, pass along information, kind of like what we're doing right now. Because mm-hmm. um, this program is, is focused right now on on talking about uh, some experience and learning from it. And mm-hmm. so that is what is happening, exchange of information. But in casual conversation, the actual goal is building a connection. And so I, I, I refocused them on, hey, let's win the game. And the way in which you win the game is you build a connection. And so if you want to build a connection, this is the way you do it. And so, yes, we do start with statements. And statements, we should, I start with statements because everyone makes statements. Everyone, you know, says sentences. Uh, and, and so it comes intuitively. And so it's a great place to start. And the core of, of when making statements is when it's in the context of conversation, it has to connect with things that people are currently talking about. So that right there becomes a great starting point is, is that, is somebody sharing something that connects with the current conversation thing? So if I talk about that, uh, you know, one of the places I love to go on vacation is New Orleans, then whoever talks next has to make some connection to what I've just talked about. They could share something about vacations in general. They could share something about uh, common knowledge about New Orleans, like Hurricane Katrina, Gulf Oil Spill, things of like that, or, or like jazz. Uh, but something, some way or another, it has to connect with what I've just talked about. Otherwise, it's seen as really odd and self-centered.
1: Okay, so I like what you just said about how casual conversation is meant to connect people together versus, as you say, uh, informational going attending a lecture or talking to someone uh, you know like you about a specific subject so that I can learn something. So, in a casual conversation, you're trying to connect with that person. And so oftentimes when you hear people say, Oh, this is my best friend. We just clicked right away. We knew we would be friends for life. It was because there was a connection there through conversation. So if you have a group of people sitting around and someone like you say says, Hey, I just got back from New Orleans. I loved it. If I have a relationship with New Orleans, I I'm going to connect with you because my next statement is going to be, oh, I've been to New Orleans and I love it. Is that what you, so, you, mm-hmm. do you, so you give the kids yeah. a chance to choose whether they've connected with that statement or not? Yeah, so
0: I, I don't – exactly. So what, what happens is visually is um, kind of like with Uno or Go Fish, that they have a set of cards in their hand, and each skill, each of the four skills has a different color. Of card. And so mm-hmm. the whole object of, of the, the actual game of chime in is to use up all your cards. And so
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so as they hold uh, these various skills in their hand, let's say, for example, what can often happen is since making statements comes a lot more, uh, it's a lot more comfortable for most people to use. Many times, the first couple times a person plays the game, all the red statement cards... Uh, leave that person's hand. And so then they're left with, for example, a lot of the blue ask with interest cards. Well, if they really want to get rid of all their cards, they've got to find a way to to ask those questions. And so uh, I kind of take in account a person's natural ability to want to win a game. And Mm -hmm. so they start asking those questions, oftentimes more so because they want to win the game, But as they ask the questions, they get a positive response back from other people and they get some more practice at asking a a multiple variety of types of questions. So then that starts being reinforcing around the idea of asking questions. And so then later, uh, they have a little bit more confidence, a little bit more familiarity so that when they're in just a normal conversation, they're more likely to ask questions.
1: That is absolutely ingenious, especially when you consider the fact that, as I mentioned in the beginning, a lot of times these kids have their own personal focus that they want to focus on, and so they have a tendency to always want to lead the conversation back to what their focus is, but turning it into a game and then igniting that desire to win a game, they're being taught these skills kind of through osmosis almost, and Exactly. It's probably a learning process where they actually find themselves going, you know, I'm actually interested in what that other person has to say. That's yeah, absolutely it's, it's genius. A
0: lot like, it's, it's a lot like learning how to play the piano. Is When a young kid starts learning how to play the piano, they, they have some kind of understanding that, that they're going to make uh, play a piece, but they don't really have a concept that uh, at some point they're going to be playing something like Chopin or... Or, right. or or a thing of that nature, but they start out practicing and practicing, and they get a little bit better at it. And then, uh, by practicing it, they they under, they start grasping uh, the the potential of of playing the piano. And so it, it becomes easier with time. And it's a little bit like that with with practicing and practicing and having good experiences. Then then they start it starts. A realization of the potential. Now, I've talked a little bit about how a lot of times the middle schoolers view things. I tend mm-hmm. to find that when I work with high schoolers and adults, they grasp the concept of building a connection more easily, and and talking more frankly about, hey, let's do this to build a connection, uh, tends to motivate them a bit more because I think uh, because you know they're they're They've had more life experience, they're more mentally, intellectually mature, mm-hmm. and also they've had, sadly, some more bad experiences of, of not fitting in. And so they they have a little bit more of a hunger to really want to to build connections.
1: Right. And I imagine you must have, when you're dealing with adults, you must have people that come to you with um, an absolute confusion and a a non-understanding of why they can't progress in their occupation or why they're not having good relationships with the opposite sex. And they are really coming to you probably out of desperation. Help me to understand this strange communication thing that's out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And people, so I want to make it really clear that that. The spectrum is a, is a broad range of people right. with all kinds of abilities and interests. And so uh, on, the, on the higher end of it, uh, people can have really great academic strengths and do really well academically and, and be even gifted. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that just because you're gifted that this area is going to be something that you figure out with ease. Right. And it also doesn't mean that the fact that you don't get this means that in some way you're stupid. It means right. that this is, this is an area you struggle. Like I struggle with uh, uh, coordination, and it doesn't mean that I, I'm an idiot, but it means that when it comes to things that require coordination, I'm going to struggle more than most, and it means I'm going to have to work harder at it if I'm going to do as well. And I'm also not going to be able to advance as far as some people if my right. expectation is is that I'm going to be in the NBA someday, uh, that's not a realistic expectation for me. but if I want right. to make the expectation that I'll play some intramural games with uh, friends, that's more realistic.
1: right, right. you know and I love the and I love that feeling too and in the instruction of giving children the idea that they are who they are and their gifts are unique. And I love when Temple Graydon, for example, Talked about how she could not and was able to finally convince her college counselors that algebra was not something she was a, ever going to be able to, to, you know, uh, pass because she was a visual learner and her, yeah. her brain works with pictures. And so this concept of unknowns was just physically She couldn't do that. And, but so she found a way of, of going around it and then, and being very successful. And I hope that educators are getting tuned into this now and understanding that you can't just plop these one thing, you know, and then make everyone fall in because you say everyone has their strengths and they can excel in their own area. And it doesn't mean that they're, like you say, stupid or, uh, you know, lacking in anything it's just not their the way their brain works i know i was the same way in math i remember story problems for me when someone because i love language and i love stories so they would start to tell me the story and i physically would start to draw the you know a car left the yeah. train station at 405 so i would start to draw the car to try to yeah. understand what they were talking about and so that's so important that you're doing that do how how do you work with adults? How do they find you? Do they find you the same way that I found you? Just Google social skills, you know, that type of thing, or word of mouth, or what? How are you finding? How are the clients finding you? I guess.
0: Yeah, w- word of mouth and, and googling me, and, um, I, and 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 you know, there's there's adults that have different different levels of, of awareness of, of, of their needs. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it varies. So I have some adults that are just really aware of, of their struggles and are very hungry to, to learn how to make things work. And so I, I can work a lot faster with them. And then I have some that that aren't really aware of their struggles but are just generally unhappy. And, mm-hmm. and so then... It's a much slower process to to getting uh, them working on some, some practice on, on learning these skills. Also, right. I want to just speak to one thing. There's a growing interest in the autism Asperger's community of looking at being on the spectrum as, as being uh, a minority class. And I think mm-hmm. there's some utility to that thinking of, of them being a minority class like uh, people who are deaf or are a minority class or people who um, have uh, I'm sorry I'm, I'm escaping me but right. the, the reason I speak to that is is that there's an effort by the majority class to expect them to be as socially adept as people who are in the majority class are mm-hmm. and that's going to be, it's going to be very difficult for uh, people in this minority class to be as good at these social niceties as Mm -hmm. uh, us in the majority class. And I'm counting myself in the majority class because I want to respect the fact that I I don't have the same kind of spectrum struggles. Having said that, you also brought up the idea of math. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting uh, this is the quandary I come in, is that for individuals on the spectrum, learning social skills is a lot like most of the people in the majority uh, group trying to learn calculus. Most mm-hmm. people in, in, the, in the majority uh, find it really difficult to learn calculus, and mm-hmm. some of us never are able to learn calculus. But uh, And so that limits us from certain professions, but not a lot of professions. Right, uh, and so, but for individuals on the spectrum, social skills is a lot like learning calculus in terms of the difficulty level they find. Mm-hmm. The problem with, with where the analogy breaks down is, is that in our society, we expect a certain level of social ability in order for a person to have a job. Right, uh, most most jobs, and so. this time, at this stage in, in our society, we expect some some level of that, and, and then we need to be able to provide some ability to learn the basics of social skills, because that's expected in these jobs. But at some point, maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be able to make more accommodations for the way in which uh, people on the spectrum prefer to socialize.
1: Exactly. Uh, that's such a good point because, as you say, we have tools that help us to get past our math problems. You know, we we don't have to be an expert in math to do a lot of things. But you say, as you point out, that is, you know, social skills and being able to communicate and read people uh, read people's emotions and things like that are just expected. And there's a certain protocol that's expected. And that's a really good point. That is a really good point. If we, if we took the same, uh, time and, and the same line, if we drew the same line for math as we do for communication skills, there would be a lot of people that would have a difficult time in the world. So that's mm-hmm. really a good point. A really good point. And I think we are starting to recognize that with people like Steve Jobs, who it was very obvious that socially he was, uh, I think awkward is probably being very nice. Uh,
0: right. but,
1: you know, but his, his intellectual ability in other areas carried him. And we are starting to recognize that and, and deal with it. We just are going to have to deal with it. Like, like this therapist pointed out, one in 88 people is falling on the spectrum somewhere. And I think that's also a good point that you made that when you use the word spectrum, that, that means that there's a lot of, of differences out there. And just saying that, um, like, for example, one of the things they talk about with, with babies or toddlers, things to look for if you, have, if you have concerns that you feel as though your child might be on the spectrum, the, uh, the focus on lining things up. Uh, make it, putting things in in order, or a fascination with letters and things like that. Well, I know that you can have a lot of those same similarities, but even in that, there are diff- each one of those children have differences in skills and abilities, and okay. it's probably why there's so much frustration out there in the education world, in the the physician world, because there is such a spectrum that. It's no longer, you can no longer just say, oh, you have appendicitis. We know exactly what to do. Or, you know, you're having gallbladder problems. We know exactly what to do. Each individual case has to be looked at. And so Mm -hmm. that's what makes it so difficult. So I, you're, this is amazing. So talk about how does your game work with using gestures?
0: So, uh, and I just want to say one thing. So it's actually one in, in 68 children that are on the spectrum. Uh, it keeps uh, getting lower and lower. And I think broadly yeah. because the diagnostic criteria are are being widened. So it's not, it's right. not as if there's like some epidemic of something in the water or something. It's, it's, right. it's, um, uh, there was a historically in, in our country when, when it first got recognized uh, what autism was is, uh, the, the original—I forget the, the researcher—but the original researcher really wanted to to hang his hat on this idea of finding the first childhood uh, form of psychosis, and oh. so he, he created this really narrow category of people who were quote unquote on the spectrum, and and since then uh, there's been a push in the community to broaden it that that to not so narrowly define it. And, mm-hmm. and that's broadly the reason uh, that, that it, it, it's increasing in terms of people being diagnosed with it. Right. But uh, having said that, what was your question again? I'm sorry. Well,
1: one of the points that you made in your, four, in your four parts of the game was that you're teaching people how to use gestures and to read other people's physical gestures. So what part of the game does that?
0: Yeah, there's a, a card. A, a, an orange card that's called encouraging gestures and sounds. And it's focused on things like nodding your head and going, Mm. Mm-hmm. For for example, I can hear that various times you've gone, mm, mm-hmm, and, and things of that nature and I'm, I am I would bet my life on it that even though we're not in the same room together, you've nodded your head periodically as I've been talking, as I have been nodding my head when you've been talking. And these are are things that are just assumed that people will be doing. And so we work on that, some in the group, and also the the reason why we nod our head or go, "Mm mm-hmm. And the reason we do that is not necessarily to say that we agree with what somebody is saying. It's more to say that we understood what was said. And so... Uh, If people can do that, if they can do some of that when somebody completes a thought, that makes the other person feel like they're being listened to. Uh, And so we we practice doing that. Uh, Another way to say this is uh, one of the terms that gets thrown around in the autism Asperger's community is that there are people who are on the spectrum and there are people who are, quote unquote, neurotypicals. I like a slightly different term. There are people who are needy types. And ah. why, the reason I call it needy types is because people like myself are really emotionally needy. And we, I, really like a lot of validation um, that you are listening to me and you understand what I'm saying. And people who are on a spectrum tend to not need as much of this kind of validation Well, if you want to connect with the majority culture, uh, if you can uh, validate what is being said with those nods and those mm mm-hmms, us needy types feel validated and we calm down and and we're more likely to want to uh, be nice to you and connect with you. And so anyway, that skill. And one of the nice things is if somebody learns how to do that a little bit is that you don't have to feel like you're on the spot to talk all the time or to ask all these questions. You can be a great follower and just nod your head a lot and, and go, mm hmm, and people will feel like, oh, you, you are such a nice person to connect with.
1: Ah, uh, so it's a friend-building tool.
0: It's, it's a strong friend-building tool. In fact, I lived for a year in Germany, and for the first three months, I didn't understand German hardly at all. But I was really good at paying attention to the tone of voice of people and know when they thought they were saying something important, I'd go, mm-hmm. And when they would say something they thought was funny, uh, they'd laugh a little bit, and I'd laugh too. And I got so many compliments on how good my German was, uh, <laughs> which which was just, just uh, made me realize how much it's not so much about understanding what's being said, but looking like you understand.
1: Yes, that's so true. I listened the other day to a, a lady that I really love listening to. She does a lot of lectures and she talked about how when she first got started, if she looked out into the audience and she even saw one person that looked down at their watch or took their eyes off of her and turned their head, that it would, she would freeze up. And it would make her think, oh no, there's one person out there that's not listening to me and they're not interested in what I'm, what I'm saying. And it's true. We do want that. We want everyone looking and nodding their heads and being captivated by what we're saying. And that's so true because if you're not, if you're not looking at that, then you're just, Talking to a wall and you're finishing your job and going on your merry way. And you're not getting, you're not making any kind of connections at all. So that's so interesting. And again, so taken for granted. Mothers look Mm -hmm. at their babies. Their babies, you know, here's a perfect example. When my son was, uh, still undiagnosed, one of the things when I finally called in desperation, I called United Cerebral Palsy and I said, I need some references for a doctor that that would specialize in cerebral palsy. And so they sent me out a packet and the packet included lists of things to look for if you think your child has uh, cerebral palsy. One of the things was that they don't smile and that they won't give you back any kind of emotional reaction. And mm-hmm. so my son was almost a year before he smiled back. And I remember playing how you do with a baby, tickling and nuzzling them in their you know on their neck and nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yeah. so you're you begin to go, well why bother? Why am I even yeah. playing with this child? They're not giving me anything back. So you can imagine if you have a friend or a brother or a sister or a family member that you're excited and you want to talk to them about something and they give you nothing. No facial expression, no comeback statement, no questions about what you said. You're getting absolutely nothing. You're not going to connect with that person.
0: Right. And And that's that's how a needy type person would react is, is these people aren't responding to it. That bothers me. But, if somebody is, depending on where a person is on the spectrum, if I'm talking about uh, Legos and I like talking about Legos, I just like, I, I do like talking about Legos. And I'm going to talk about them whether you show interest or not because I enjoy talking <laughs> about it. And that's if and if you end up responding to it, I mean, that's cool uh, and, and that's great and, and that will make it even more fun. But, hey, regardless, I enjoy talking about it. And, and a needy type person wouldn't do that. Uh, they would talk for a little bit, and if the other person didn't seem responsive, they go, oh, I guess they don't like what I'm talking about. Let's try and find something we can talk about together. Uh, because the, the, the unwritten rule is, if we are talking with each other, it's important to find something that we can both enjoy talking about.
1: Right. Interesting. Okay. So how, as we close up here, we have about five minutes left, to, because I know that the teasing part, when you talk about friendly teasing, I know that because there is a communication, uh, and they, and they don't read facial features well, how do you teach them about friendly teasing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, friendly teasing is, is probably the thing that Causes kids and adults and parents and providers to light up uh, uh, of all the skills that I teach. It's it's the skill that isn't being taught anywhere. Period. Mm-hmm. And friendly teasing is is part of everyday conversation, but uh, it's the thing that kids on the spectrum struggle with. And and quite frankly, many of us who are not on the spectrum struggle with a lot. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because it can look a lot like bullying. And Mm -hmm. so most of us try and figure it out by understanding the nonverbal cues. But uh, I talk about it slightly differently. Uh, And what I talk about is think about the relationship you have to the person. Is that person usually nice to you or at least neutral towards you? Mm -hmm then if they are, are saying something that seems like a joke or something, just assume that it's friendly teasing because uh, more than likely they're wanting to try and build a connection with you. Mm-hmm. And so it's much better to respond in a positive way to the friendly teasing, like laugh a little bit, uh, et cetera, et cetera, than to get all uptight and, uh, and offended and say something like, you know, shut up. You don't need to be talking to me that way. Right. Uh, conversely, Uh, again, ask that same question, is this person usually nice to me? And you go, no, actually, this person picks on me a lot. Then just make the assumption that even if you don't understand it, that some way or another, this is probably some form of bullying. And how you deal with it is kind of complex. It may be that you ignore it. It may be that you ask for help. It may be that you know, there needs to be more being done in the system, the school or, or other system to, to l- eliminate this kind of thing. But it's just important to do that because most people who struggle socially are literal thinkers. And right. when a bully sees a reaction from a literal thinker, the next thing they tend to do is, hey, what's, what's your deal, man? Can't you take a joke? Well, then a literal thinker thinks, oh, it was a joke and then what they do is they go tease somebody else that same way and right. that's where it gets really bad because when they tease somebody else that same way the other person knows that what they ha- what has been said is offensive and they're not right. going to buy the line that it's just a joke and 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 then the person who struggles socially will will genuinely be upset because they thought they were friendly teasing that's what this bully had said to them they said it was friendly teasing. So why are they getting in trouble?
1: Right. That's so, so important. It's interesting that you would say that. I remember as a child, because my mom has a great sense of humor, and I would listen and I would watch her talk with her friends and, and so one time we got a, uh, our family got a new car and I was, it was a, one of the, you know, great 1960 something Volkswagen vans, you know, and I was playing around in it and the neighbor next door came over and said, wow, look at your new car. Do you like your new car? And I said, yeah, aren't you jealous? And so she goes and tells my mom. And my mom has to pull me aside. And I said, Well, I was just, I thought that was funny. I've heard you talk to your friends and she had to explain to me exactly what you said that she can say things to her friends that, you know, that's funny because they have a relationship, but I didn't have a relationship with that neighbor and so it wasn't funny to her. And so, it, you know, what I learned as a seven year old child, you sometimes have to teach to adults that, that it's all based on what the relationship is and the love and the emotion that's behind some friendly teasing.
0: And the context that if if that friend family was as financially well-off as your family it might have been okay to joke in that way but if they struggled financially it would definitely be not okay to joke in that way.
1: Right, right, exactly. Oh, it's so interesting, the things that that we have to teach our kids nowadays and all of the circumstances around it, you know. Um, yeah. Wow. But thank heavens there is something like your program. Dr. Brooke, tell people how, because you, you offer your services in Portland and also in Vancouver, so yeah. what's the best way for people to find out more about what you have to offer?
0: Well, uh, they can go to my website. It's Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E, psychologist, P-S-Y-C-H-O-L-O-G-I-S-T-S. I know that's a, a mouthful, but <laughs> you can also Google uh, Brooke Social Skills, and I'm sure it will come up, uh, particularly if you put in Brooke Social Skills Portland, it'll come up uh, uh, via Google. And if you're not in the area, you are absolutely welcome to purchase my game. It's available on my my website. Uh, a lot of People in the community, in the school community here, are starting to use the game. And uh, I, I just haven't made a push to make it more nationally known. Not that I wouldn't want to make it more nationally known, but there's right. only so many hours in the day.
1: Exactly. And it's pretty explanatory if someone was to want to purchase the chime in, the conversation game. It's pretty self-explanatory inside how to use it and, and, and how, how to make it most beneficial.
0: Yeah, uh, I believe it's pretty self-explanatory. And if somebody purchases it, purchases it, and they have questions, they're welcome to email or call me, and uh, I'll definitely talk with them and and try and help them understand any any nuances to it. And uh, it certainly uh, parents can use it, but it, it would probably be a parent that is used to um, kind of homeschooling, motivating their child with various things, if if you struggle to, to get your child motivated to do things that are a little bit difficult, it might be best to have a therapist or a, a teacher be uh, teaching the skills because they tend to have a, a bit more of a tool bag uh, as to help them over the initial uh, uh, part of anxiety and resistance towards doing something. Because at the end of the day, this is a, 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 an enjoyable game to play, but it's, it's, not, it's certainly not Minecraft. It's certainly not a video <laughs> game where exactly. where there's all all the reinforcement uh, uh, along with it. it exactly, it, it, is, it is kind of a schoolish kind of curriculum.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brooke. I so appreciate you taking time out of your day for us. And I hope all of you have enjoyed what uh, Michael has shared with us today. There is help out there. I know it's a struggle to find it, but there are more and more people that are jumping in and uh, focusing totally on this. And there's help out there, and I hope you can find it. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk again next Monday. Bye-bye.